This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. Thanks to Ward Keller, the Territory Law Firm. Hello and welcome to the Territory Story Podcast. I'm Leon Logan Nathan and my co-host, Mr. Peter Gowers. Hello, mate. How are you? I'm good, mate. I'm good. In fact, uh, I was just going to tell you, um, I've been watching a couple of World War II documentaries recently. Uh Yes. And... I was watching a documentary on the um, uh, Japanese uh, occupation of all those Pacific islands, including uh, Guadalcanal, yep. which is one of those famous battles. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think, I hope I've got the right one. Um, there was a uh, piece of artillery on that, on that island, um, and it was so good at shooting... <laughs> <laughs> they called it Pistol Pete. <laughs> <laughs> of course they did. Slightly bigger than a pistol, though, I'm tipping. So you can imagine what I was thinking when I heard that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Hopefully they destroyed it. Ah, uh, yeah. Look, mate, uh, it's all a bit of a, a haze now because I've been watching so much of it. I'm trying to... Trying to uh, remember which order it was in and, and, and which battles uh, they were they were talking about but that's all right mate uh, look uh, we'll save that one for another day because it, it uh, you know the stuff that uh, you learn from watching those things mm-hmm. has incredible application to what's happening at the moment I gotta say yeah you know um, but uh, we'll, we'll put history aside for the for the for the time being and we're going to talk we're going to talk science today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it gives me great pleasure to introduce someone to you whom I don't really know very well, and I only know him because he's the father of a couple of kids that go to the same school as mine. And um, we first met at a, at a science fair, I think it was. Uh, Dr. Chris Chilcott. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here. This is where Pete normally says, Hi, Chris, but I don't know what's going on. There's a bit of a lag in Melbourne. <laughs> I just I decided to uh, go rogue on you tonight. <laughs> yeah. So um, I was really keen to get Chris on the podcast. In fact, Chris has actually uh, been to our firm, Ward Kelly, and, and given a talk on what he does because he has a really interesting job, in my opinion. Uh, he Chris, you head up, don't you, the uh, CSIRO in Darwin? In Darwin, yeah. So head of the office up here. Um, and that that's by name and partly by nature because it's a fairly diverse group of people. So sort of the figurehead, uh, but they're all quite different and diverse, the different things they do. So I can't represent them all every day. The science is pretty varied, but it's an exciting place to be. And being a small office, you get exposed to a lot of different stuff, Um which you wouldn't get in other CSR offices, so mm. yeah, it's a pretty good spot to be in. Yeah, uh, well, look, we're going to talk. Uh, we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But uh, could you give us a, a bit of a, you know your background? Where were you born? Uh, so originally from Perth, oh, Fremantle, near Fremantle, I was born, um, and then uh, and lived there, you know, through all the things you do at school and everything, and went to uni there, uh, so and then yeah. So where did you go to school? Uh, a place called North Lakes Senior High School, as it was. So it was uh, down towards um, 
uh, south of, uh, inland from Fremantle. So yeah, uh, I, I know I know Perth because I was I, I grew up there as well. Oh, there you go. Or <laughs> well, south of the river. There you go. So if you were exactly from north of the river, yeah. Ah, oh, look, perfect. Well, there's only two of us on this call. I suspect who do. So yeah. <laughs> Actually, you'd be surprised. We have had a <laughs> lot of people, Chris, over the time from Perth. Oh, there you are. It's, it's, good, a, it's a good place to be. Disproportionate number of people from Perth. I'm going to say. Yep. Leon's loaded it up. <laughs> it's a good place to leave, maybe. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> so, North Lakes, that would have been close to Adventure World, right? Did you? Did you it, spend it was. Much time there? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I worked there actually as a casual, so uh, as a ride operator. So I, there's a you, you are really digging. It sounds like you've done your research, but yeah, <laughs> I worked at Adventure World for a few years. Um, so as you know, to get through uni and all that sort of stuff. So that was a good fun job, standing out in the sun. Um, right. Yeah, yeah. My favourite thing at Adventure World were the cars. You know, oh, right. cars. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, I I worked on those as well. So there would be people who would run into you when you were standing in front of them. So it was quite treacherous. I'm sure you didn't do that. You would have been very safe. Oh yes, I was. Uh, you know, as a lawyer, you know, I sort of abide by the rules, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, uni, uh, UWA, Curtin, with uh, Murdoch, Murdoch Uni, so Murdoch, nearby. Yes. Yeah, Murdoch uh, did an environmental science degree, and then um, went and did a an honours part to that, and worked on <laughs> and worked on a local tree in my research, so a tree called a Chewett tree, um, and then and then from there left and went and did a PhD in. The University of New England in New South Wales. So, so, and then all the science stuff started from there. I'm going to say that the University of New England also gets a overrepresentation on the podcast, <laughs> right? <laughs> Unbelievably. <laughs> I'm not making this up, so I'm not just fitting to type here. I, I did actually go there, so yeah. Well, I, I'm still stuck at Tewit Tree because mm. is that what Tewit Hill is is named after? It is. Yeah, that's right. So the the tree. Uh, if you think of Perth, if you know you do know Perth, it's all a bunch of sand dunes, basically, yes. and the trees grow parallel to the sand dunes. So the that tree, the Chewett tree, is on these um, parts of the landscape that have limestone under them, and they're a big dune, and so they're a more fertile part of the landscape. So they're a big, quite a big tree, really. Uh, I think they were 30, 30 odd meters, that sort of thing, which is big for a coastal plain. Yeah, and so and, yeah, yeah, and I'm just thinking with the. I, I don't actually recall ever having been to Tewart Hill. I don't even, I don't even know where it was <laughs> no. on a map. Uh, I can tell you it's about 10 kilometres off the beach. So that's about where the strip of trees were um, and it's north of Perth. So um, it's it probably it was the northern suburbs. wouldn't be anymore. It'd be in the middle of the suburbs. But, yeah. Right, because the only reason that Tewart Hill has any resonance in my mind is because that was the suburb where either Channel 7 or Channel 9. Exactly, yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They had their, um, you know, the television tower on top of the dune because that was the, one of the highest parts of the landscape, So, and hence right. the trees are on the dune. So there's always a bit of ecology and everything in planning. Yeah, and, and, and sort of having sort of, I suspect having sort of grown up either the same time as me or slightly after, you would have uh, been very familiar with the likes of Flapper and, and uh, Fat Cat and uh, Yes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's a very – I think that's a very West Australian thing. I don't think yeah. people outside of Perth had Fat Cat. Um, it's probably not very PC now to have Fat Cat either, but, yeah. <laughs> yep. So, Pete, just for your information, Flapper and Fat Cat um, sort of coexisted with Humphrey? Yeah, we had Fat Cat. Um, 
<clears throat> I, I'm not familiar with Flapper, but I, I think Fat Cat ended up getting run over by a car or something, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> I, <don't, laughs> I think. Anyway. I don't know. I, I only ever saw Flapper live <laughs> at some supermarket sometime. <laughs> a vacation. <laughs> But uh, you'll, you'll have to join us, uh, Chris, on a, on a podcast in the future when we talk about Countdown and, and all those things because they're very much up uh, Pete's alley. <laughs> I look forward to that. <laughs> but uh, so um, you're always interested in science then at school? Uh, yeah, it was. Um, it didn't pop out as a thing to do. It kind of became uh, – so I did environmental science, so it was a quite a general type of degree and it was just – but really interested in the nature, the natural part of it, despite living in a suburb. So uh, I always was fascinated by the, you know, the native vegetation and things like that around us. Um, and we still have that where I lived. And so it just seemed like a natural progression to work on that stuff. Um, right. So, yeah it, was, yeah, it was interesting. And the, real, the good thing about it was finding a way to get paid to do it. So, you know, finding a, a career path that took you to uh, income and, you know, pursuing things of great interest and getting paid to do it, which is, is a pretty good job for science, people who have an interest in science. Yeah, well, I, I really admire you because, uh, you know, um, science is not one of those things that is generally encouraged. You know, people aren't generally encouraged to go into science or even arts, you know. Um, it's sort of regarded as being too general, but this such this so important in their own way. Yeah, it it's an interesting, uh, I suppose it was off the time. So when we were going through, it was not seen as, uh, it was engineering and uh, heaven forbid everyone went into the legal uh, to get a law degree. Um, and so all those sorts of things and commerce, et cetera, et cetera. So the sciences weren't as strong. I think they'll come back. They're coming back. And obviously uh, in the moment, um, the world's turning to science to solve some of the great problems of pandemics. And that raises profile about about careers in science, which is a nice thing to have. Not that a pandemic is a good thing to have, but there's some positives coming out of it for scientists at least. Yeah. And so so did you enjoy going to Murdoch? I mean, it's a lovely campus. I remember back in the, back in the late 80s when I was at UWA. Yeah, and it was sort of by – it was nearby. So I could ride my push bike there. And, uh, and if you remember the campus or anyone who's ever been to the campus, the – the bush court, as it was known, the trees in the bush court are tuer trees. So there was a connection there as well. So um, yeah, so it was a, it was a beautiful campus, um, a good school we went to. So the School of Environmental Science was um, was well regarded and had some great academics. Um, and and I think that in again, you know, having that good tutors, a good tutoring through that system, then sort of gave me the impetus to keep going through the science because you could stop there and go and get a job. But I thought oh, I'm going to keep going. This is pretty good fun. Right, right. Now I'm going to throw a curveball at you, and you know, I wouldn't. I mean, I'm not expecting you to know, but <laughs> the, I, I knew a guy that was doing a PhD at Murdoch, and I'm pretty sure it must have been environmental science because he did a science degree. Uh, but he, he, his focus was on long range weather forecasting, and his name was David Stevens. Oh no, I don't. Good, good try. No, I don't know them. No, don't know him. Um, yeah, <laughs> right. but imagine if I did, that would have been really quite. Coincidental, yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. So, you finished your science degree and then uh, you did honours. And yep. then did you go straight to UNE or did you do something? Uh, pretty much. So, yeah, they uh, there was a uh, scholarship. So, 
you know, as Hex was coming in around that time and things like that. So you could get scholarships to go and do work um, in PhDs. And so I was able to get one of those. And that was, again, a great incentive to get paid to do research. Um, and I'd never been to Armidale. Uh, and so when I landed there, it was, if you know Armidale, it was summer. So it seemed like a great place. Um, <laughs> no, no way prepared for the winters, but it, it was it was a good campus. So it was great to live there. Oh, I didn't live on campus, but in the town. So it's a quite small town. Mm-hmm. Uh, and was there for, I think it took me four years to do my PhD. Probably shouldn't have taken that long, but it did. Yeah. And you enjoyed your time there? Yeah, yeah. And PhD is a good, a good um, I don't know if fun's the right word, uh, probably not. They're hard work, um, but uh, they're just like a big assignment. Um, and it's, you, it's kind of the time in your science endeavours that you actually get into the detail of stuff. So you actually learn the thinking side of things as well as the, you know, the outcome that you're looking for. And so that's why they're the P's in the PhD because it's the philosophy of research. Um, and so that was good fun. Um, but it, it was great to finish. It was really good to get it done, finished and in the bag. <laughs> yeah. And, and the, the Viva, is that what it's called when you have to defend your thesis? Yeah, we didn't, we don't do that. Well, we certainly didn't do it at that. I've seen that in movies and I, that would be terrorizing. Yeah, I just couldn't imagine doing that. Um, yeah, yeah. No, you, you do it. We did a seminar. So that was hard enough that you, at the end of it all, but you are, I mean, I mean, being optimistic, three people read it and I was one of them. So, you know, there are not a lot of people who actually read them. Uh, and so when you get to that point, you are the person who knows the most about it because you've written it all and you've researched it, et cetera. So it's pretty hard to get a question that you're not prepared for, but you still are incredibly nervous because you've spent all this time getting to that point. Um, and so you want to do it, you know, give it a good show. Um, yeah. And I, I was having nightmares about it. I was, um, or not nightmares, but I was... Um, having these dreams that I would I'd break into song in the middle of my seminar because I was just so <laughs> nervous. But it didn't happen. I just gave a bulk standard boring PhD seminar. Sing your answers. That's a great idea. It would have been all right. I, I don't know how if I would have been better though. I suspect not. Yeah. <laughs> and so you finished your PhD and then you got a job somewhere? Yeah. I, uh, while I was finishing it, I went and worked in Queensland. So I started working with the Queensland government uh, in uh, so a bit of a change into the rangelands. So the rangelands are sort of, if you think of Australia and it rains on the edges, the bits between the edge where it rains and there's trees and the bit the desert is the rangelands. Um, and so worked in that part of how rangeland systems work and how grazing animals interact with those systems. So that was a research project post-PhD, not a, not a postdoc, but a post-PhD. Uh, but I'd run out of money, so I actually had to get a job. So I went off and did that and then finished writing up the PhD at the same time. Mm. So that was good. That was good to get, again, get paid. It, it helps at times. And how did you get from there to the, the territory? Uh, so I was, we were uh, in Queensland for uh, 15 years. So there was quite a quite a period of time in the Queensland government. I went between Queensland and WA doing things in the rangelandy area. So more towards agricultural management and um, livestock production. And so from science into a little bit of, we call it extension. So basically taking your science and delivering it to people who would manage the land, so graziers or farmers or whatever they were, and then went into more, the, started getting into the management. So as you, as you progress, you either dig into some specialisation, that's one path in science, or you become more general and you start to manage the science. So I chose to manage it uh, and 
flicked between Western Australia and back into Queensland. And then at the end of that, I actually got into a policy position. So that that was taking me sort of full circle. Um, and that at once sort of that's a long long answer. And then after all that, I got into the NT after that. So sort of at the end of policy, went back to science, which is the CSIRO role I have now. It's how long have you been with the CSIRO? Uh, it's five years this year. Right. And so, so you yeah. came to, to Darwin to take up the job with the CSIRO? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it was a position, uh, a new position up here. And so a bit of it was around, a lot of it was around looking at how CSIRO uh, delivered science and, and innovation into the development of Northern Australian agenda that the government had at the time, or well, still has it now. Um, and so it was to come in and look at how you might do some of that work. So there's some specific projects, but also then how do you coordinate activities across CSIRO, CSIRO that might then help in Northern Australian development? Um, you could do that from anywhere in, in a sense, um, but it was really good opportunity to be based in Darwin or in the NT. Um, pretty hard to find senior science roles outside of the big city. So why wouldn't you go for this job? Now, Chris, I bet uh, every adult in the country has heard of the CSIRO, <laughs> but I reckon less than 1% could actually say what the letters stand for. So here's your opportunity to educate me and uh, many others. Now, I should, I, it's a good question and I should have prepared because I suspect I'll get it wrong. Um, it, but it's the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation. So it, um, and it's a hundred, well, a hundred and a few years old now, over a hundred years old um, and first established around the Commonwealth, the Australian government's response to mainly agriculture, really. It was the reason it was established. Um, yeah. Now, I don't want to steal Leon's thunder here, but I suspect I'm going to. When Australians travel the world and uh, when they need a moment to puff out their chests, <laughs> the CSIRO is uh, caught up in that and I'm sure that you would know why. Uh, so why we're, uh, why people would be proud of our efforts? Is it Wi-Fi? Uh, would that be the one? Yeah. And Martin. Absolutely. Martin and Martin. Oh, team, yeah. Yeah. Um, the self-spinning yarn, uh, not that I don't know what that is, but we yeah. apparently invented that. <laughs> right. um, there's a few other things around that Syro has been famous for. Um, yeah. And there, there's, a, there's a laundry detergent of some description, but that's about as deep as my knowledge gets. Um, the Brahmin cattle uh, in part had been a Syro activity. Wow. Um, and then a bunch of, bunch of other stuff that... Um, but Wi-Fi is the one that most people mm. will know about, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and again, I suspect a lot of people know it's an Australian invention, but they perhaps don't know exactly where it came from. But um, thanks to having uh, friends like Leon in my life, I'm abundantly aware that it's the CSIRO, and it's a great brag when you're overseas because <laughs> so many people don't realise it's an Australian invention. Yes, right. And I don't know the full story of why, but it was a, it was a byproduct of other research. So, um, it you know, so you've got to be in that position that you've got to keep your eyes open around all the other things that are going on. But uh, yeah, um, it, it's a nice thing to have. Um, the the organisation, and I'm wearing one now. We have shirts, and on the back of it, they have the greatest hits of Syro. So, you know, we all walk around with these things on, and most people look at it going, I don't know what these idiots are talking about. So, <laughs> yeah, I can send you one of those shirts, and then you'll know what Syro does. Yeah, yeah. So, um, in Darwin, um, 
again, uh, I think a lot of us know that uh, there's a branch. Um, but again, m- many people wouldn't know what the CSIRO in Darwin actually does. So could you give us some insight into that? So it's been uh, so I've been here in the last five years. It's been here since the seventies. Um, it's so it's had a long history around tropical, mainly tropical research. So tropical Australian research, but particularly in its initial uh, establishment around th- initially around agriculture. So what would be some of the agriculture you could do in this area? So there was a cashew farm uh, in town that they used to work on, and have had trials in these areas. So, there's been that history of agricultural development. It then moved more into the areas of tropical ecology and conservation management. Uh, And so, an area where it's got some infamy or fame around it's been around the understanding of how you use fire in northern Australian environment um, and also then how you can use fire as a way to mitigate carbon. So, um, so you can use some things like cultural burning, you do it at certain times of year and then you get a carbon credit for it. So, that's some of the research that it done. In, when I came up, we started to ch- move away from some of that work and, and, the, and people changed. So, people would enter their, you know, enter their careers and all that sort of stuff. And we started to look at things like water resources. So, the work that I was initially doing was around water resource assessments where we go into a big catchment, um, you know, a river basin. And then you basically look at where all the water resources are and the soil resources and how could they then be put together in a way that would allow sustainable development. Um, it seems somewhat simple when you say it like that. But if you think of it, it's doing that work in about two and a half years over an area about the size of Victoria in three states. So, we were doing it in Western Australia, Northern Territory and Queensland. And you're trying to pull all that information together and then make it in a way that people can then use and make decisions around. So, that's that's what we did for most recently in that work. Uh, and then we, you know, new technology. So, we've created apps that help people interrogate that information and make decisions. So, that's probably what we've done recently. Um, The last one, the one that's even more recent than that, it shows the variability of the work we do is we're working on a thing called the Darwin Living Lab. So, it's an urban living lab and trying to understand how you might help to mitigate heat in an urban environment and in a tropical urban environment. Um, And so, it's called the Darwin Living Lab. It used to be called the Darwin Urban Living Lab, but it as an acronym, that's dull. So, we have dropped the U <laughs> out of the middle of it. Um, so, that that's some uh, – and that's a long project. So, that's over nine years. So, that's quite a long time for science um, activities. Uh, and it's also a bit of a hybrid because it's working with the council, the NT government, the Australian government around the city's deal that they're looking at building new stuff in the city. And then we're looking at heat mitigation and livability as part of that. So, it's a very varied portfolio of work that we get exposed to up here. Mm. Does that last one have any uh, relation to global warming? So, all in the context. So, for up here, definitely. Um, it's more around the microclimate or so the, the scale of um, urban heat islands. Uh, and so, how if you walk outside in, at any time in Darwin, it's kind of hot. Makes sense. It's the tropics. Um, but you imagine then putting another four or five degrees on top of that because you're surrounded by concrete and asphalt and stuff like that. So, it's really looking at how do you reduce that and you're never going to make it cool in a sense of being cold, but you will be able to reduce that 
sort of uncomfortable nature. And it could be everything from there's a uh, people who know Dale and the Kavanaugh Street street structure. Uh, hmm. There's a shade that goes over the top and there's vines hmm. growing in there. That'll reduce the temperature by some amount. But broader than that, you would want to know how uh, what other things you might do that would reduce temperatures and how would you do it effectively? So how do you do that at a scale that will impact for everyone? Yeah, yeah. We recently had some good news about the uh, the Kavanaugh shade structure that it should pay off by about twenty five years from now. So that's great. Oh, that's a good sign. Oh, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I think the vines have made it. So there's a it's a it's a lovely structure. The timber's beautiful. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it will pay off one day. <laughs> <laughs> mm. So. Um, in terms of your personal research, are you doing anything in particular? Um, at the moment, so no more in a manage, like in a true management position at the moment. So still doing some water resource assessments. Um, so we do, we're doing some work around the Roper River, which is south of here, uh, and also um, just more generally across Northern Australia, looking at other water development opportunities. So just a little bit of that, and most of it at the moment's in in sort of more. Uh, straight out management which is which is good it's good fun but it's uh, not the science at the moment yeah do you miss the science the research oh no uh, no it's not uh not in the i should say i very positive i enjoy the current job it, it's more around making sure other people can do their science effectively so that's a it's kind of uh a, a really nice rewarding role that you can enable i think we've got 300 people in our part of csiro that we we look to try and enable how they can do their research um so no no, no uh, i don't miss it at the moment um but i know i could go back to doing research if, if i had to Hey, Chris, on the water management side of things, um, I remember when I first came to Darwin, it was uh, around about April that year, so coming out of the wet season, uh, I was first stunned at just how green it was and how lush and tropical. And I I watched in amazement for the next few years as um, uh, sprinklers would be running flat out during storms um, they'd run 365 days a year people would hose off their uh, driveways just you know to remove a couple of items and y- you got the impression and i was led to believe that basically uh, water in the northern territory is is infinite there's no issue with that but then in the last couple of years uh, we've had some lower rainfall than than normal or average and and it, it seems that water has become an issue all of a sudden, it, coupled with the fact that, um, again, you know, I was told initially that the Darwin Dam was extended so many years ago, but really it's it's undersized for what Darwin actually needs. So can you shed some light on all of that, as in do we have enough water? Is it is it actually a finite resource or, or are there no problems there at all? So your last point's probably the right one. It's a finite resource. So there's only so much that can fall and there's only so much that can be captured in a way that can be put into the back for urban use because urban's, urban's sort of where we mostly see it. Mm-hmm. But in the rural environment as well, there's also a limit in terms of the amount of water available for irrigated agriculture. So the unique nature of here is it's really wet, like it's raining at the moment, um, and then the aquifers, so the groundwater fills up during these really wet seasons. So they we, we drain them out, if you like, or we take water from them, and then as it rains, it fills up again. Um, the reality, though, is that for nine 
eight months of the year, it's a drought. We don't have any rain. And so, therefore, you're limited. You're not limited by the amount of water that falls. You're limited by the amount of dry season. And if that's longer or shorter, then what you what you observed is what happens. You start to run out of water. And so, depending on the size of Darwin and the amount of water that people use or the way we use that water, we will be water limited. Um, so, part of the Darwin Living Lab is to look at the water-sensitive urban design, it's called. Um, so, how do you design cooling or use water to reduce things? So, green gardens are cooler than brown rocks, kind of in the simplest, simple view. view. Uh, but also then, how do you then get... Uh, water used in a more efficient manner. So, so the utilities such as power and water will be looking at, uh, you know, how do they reduce water use, that sort of thing. So, yeah. So, I think you're, what you're seeing is a tension between not only the changing climate but also, you know, having a poor wet season and then people still using the same amount of water. Uh, but the system can work well if you start to reduce the amount of water use or do other things in terms of the way you, re, uh, the way you capture and store water. So, an alternative is you build another dam. So you could actually then go and increase the size of the Darwin River Dam or the, you, know, you could re, re-utilise Manton Dam or you could build a brand new dam somewhere else. And so eventually you would have to do that up here because the population would grow to a point where you would run out of water. That's a long answer to uh, your question, I think. No, but it's good because it's, it's thorough and, and in line with, with what I was looking for. Um, the, the other thing too is that... Um, you know, there was some talk a few years ago about uh, repurposing some of that water down south, but I suspect that that's off the uh, off the map at the moment. Yeah, there's times. That's right. So there's times when people will look at so particularly like this wet season that we're seeing at the moment. It's there's a lot of rain around, and, and particularly in North Queensland. Uh, so we've seen some cyclones go across and seemingly huge amounts of waterfall. Um, and so then people will say, well, there's a shortage of water in other parts of the country. Can't we just capture that and move it to the other part of the country? Um, and so it's probably engineeringly possible to do that. But the cost of doing that is quite high, of course, because you're pumping a large volume of something of low value. So you sort of go, "There's you could do it that way or you could just use water more efficiently where you are. Um, and then there's also the cost of doing that in the location you take it from. So there's an equity question. If you're taking water from a catchment and the people there aren't getting to use it because someone else is getting it, uh, or the natural environment isn't getting as much water as it used to, then that is an equity both for the environment but also for the people in those catchments. So it's never quite as simple as that. Um, and and I, I say this flippantly, but people seem to think if you're in the north, then water flows downhills to the south. It's not quite like that. So, <laughs> there's a, it's a bit harder than you think to move water long distances. It's quite a, quite a challenge, actually. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so, so yeah. do you – I mean, you're talking about the rain here and it's just amazing and fantastic the amount of rain we're getting. Uh, should we be trying to like, – should we all have water um, uh, storage devices like they do in Brisbane? Um, you could. I think the challenge is keeping them clean because it's, I don't know about you, but we went away for a few weeks over Christmas and came back with mould as well in the house. Um, and so that's part of it is how do you keep it clean? But you imagine as it fills and then it stops raining on, you know, the 1st of April and that tank is, I don't know, 
thousand liters or whatever, you probably run out pretty quick of using it. Mm. So, so there is a challenge about storing a lot of water locally, um, and uh, also then having empty tanks that could blow away. I imagine they're not very safe in a cyclone. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So there's a few, but I, all the folks in rural area will have tanks. I imagine that there's a lot of people who have rainwater tanks. Um, you just need the area to do it to get sufficient amount of water for for that period because it's such a unique pretty unique you know it rains and then it stops it's mm. a wet season and it's a dry season and that there's not much in between so yeah and i guess unlike water the sun shines 365 days a year in darwin so you must be a big fan of the photovoltaic cells uh, we, we have some on the roof yeah and they're uh, pretty good um yeah they are it's it's interesting watching it how how as people pick it up the cost comes down have you seen with any new technology that as it as it gets higher adoption the costs come down i think the the natural next progression for people will be storage so um how do you then uh so lots of sun like you say it's it's producing energy generally when you don't need it at home so if you're working or got you know, kids at school and that sort of thing, you're producing most the energy when you're using the least amount of energy. So there's a bit about how you then, how you can afford to um, move that use to when you need it. So that's, that's things like batteries uh, or selling back into the grid, that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, but we put some on recently, actually late last year. Just in time. Just in time. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, for it to be um, cloudy for 14 days. So I don't know how they're going at the moment. They're probably struggling a bit. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think they are actually. I was telling people <laughs> the other day. But I do have a question about that, um, Chris. And it came to me a couple of days ago, maybe even yesterday. I was wondering, because I was thinking to myself, you know, the solar hot water system has been around for like, 50 years. I mean, I remember as a kid in Perth, you know, Solar Heart. You remember all the yep. ads on TV yep. and everything? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we had solar hot water systems on our roofs back in the late 70s, you know, early 80s. Why was that so easy to do compared to electricity? Uh, yeah. So some of it is that it's essentially the readiness of the technology and it then becomes a unit cost. So the first solar panels that people would open were extraordinarily expensive because they were the first ones. And so it's really just this slow burn you see in any science and innovation that it does take. So some things just go go crazy straight away. But a lot of it is about getting enough of it happening, the efficiency in place that it then becomes sensible for people to then take up. Um, it's it, it's So there's, a, there's some... There's some effort and science around how you shorten that process. So, how do you make technologies accelerate through there? So, you'll hear about accelerators and things like that in business. Well, they do them in science as well. So, how do you get closer to the impact? And Cyro's quite keen on that about how do you take something that's a really good idea in the lab or in in uh, in concept and theory, how do you get it closer to the market faster? So, therefore, you can see impacts from it. So, if you've got a really cool technology that saves something or does something better, it in itself won't be ready for the market. So you've got to actually look at the technology readiness and then work out how you get that pathway to market. Um, so that's a different way of thinking for traditional science. Traditional science would work on a problem, say we've solved the problem, move on to the next problem. It's more around then going on and saying, well, how do you then actually have that, make sure that that has an impact and, and moves closer to to the things that you desire that it would do. So, yeah. But it, solar is a, a great example and we're seeing it now with large-scale solar coming in to the territory. It, it seems like a no-brainer when you do it, but 
clearly wasn't a no-brainer. It was hard to do. Um, it's hard to make it retrofitted into the systems we have. And so it just takes a bit of time to get those things sorted. Yeah, it helps if they keep the grid up to date. I think um, some of the backdating of the technology has been related to, you know, a grid that probably could have been maintained better over the years. Yeah, and um, if you think of if you were if we didn't have phones, and if we're probably all old enough to know about landlines, um, you imagine retrofitting a phone system now if you only started with mobile phones it's kind of simple so the challenge is retrofitting technology into a system that already exists is harder sometimes than creating creating it anew Um, and so that's a little bit of a challenge in there as well i suspect Mm. hey chris is there a um uh, a commercial focus at all uh with the csiro i mean using wi-fi as an example um you know, did you set out for that to be something that that then uh, earned a revenue stream for the organisation, or is is it purely science and you know for the betterment of human beings? Uh, so I'm not sure what their motivations were when they started. So probably not not sure how they got to that commercialisation bit. But the I bit of Syro is the important bit. So it's the industry bit. So mm. it does specifically say for the betterment of the country and for the development of industry. So in the legislation, it has all the purposes that we exist. And one of them is about an economic return or benefit to industry. So, so yeah, that's definitely part of the, uh, the um, values or the the DNA of CSIRO, that we're going to be here for the betterment of industry. Different than universities. So if you think of research institutions, universities wouldn't necessarily have that as the way that they would operate, but CSIRO would, uh, that we're actually looking at how we work with industry um, in that. So that's part of it. And then the commercialization bit might be, uh, uh, you know, that could be a direct commercialization. So a company gets spun out of CSIRO or, uh, and then it, you know, it goes from there. So there's been a recent one called um, uh, Future Feed, I think it's called, where they've taken seaweed, uh, and this generally seaweed that you would find in the ocean, so kelp, and then looked at the product, some of the products that they've produced out of that, that they can then feed into livestock. And that li- that supplement then reduces the amount of methane that those animals produce, which is reduces greenhouse gas emissions. And so that technology is cool. So it's really good, really clever. Um, and again, that could have just generated good science, would have been interesting. But then they went a step further and said, how do we then commercialize that? So how do you then make that product become a commercial reality? And that's a step beyond just doing the science. So that's the type of model that we see happening in CSIRO, as well as some of the pure environmental or public good science that Mostly, our part of the business, uh, uh, part of Syro, does some of that work. And I hate to harp on about the Wi-Fi, but <laughs> is that something that the CSIRO has directly made money from? Uh, there was, uh, I don't know the history, but there was quite a quite a deal, right? I think they there was some um, legal cases, and yeah, so yes, there's a, and then they've uh, look at you're at the edge of my knowledge here, and I probably should have um, prepped on this, but uh, as I understand it, the royalties from that then they've used to uh, to reinvest into the organisation as well as in other areas. But yeah, it's a bit of struggle. I'm I'm on the edge of my knowledge here. Is funding a problem for the CSIRO? I mean, look, I, mean, that's, I know that's a, probably a loaded question, but <laughs> it is. It's like health. Um, but, like, has, has the CSIRO, like, you know, for example, like the ABC is being, is, is being cut to ribbons, you know, almost in every budget. Does the CSIRO face the same sort of pressures? Uh, I think... Uh, 
I, I have to be genuinely honest. I, I, I haven't. So I've, I think we, uh, we get the amount of funding we need to do the work. We'd always want more. I think if you know any scientists, you're going to ask them, of course, they would want more money for their research. To uh, So I think we could always use more. But as my my impression in the time I've been there is that we've been funded for what we need. The model is a bit... Uh, so if you think of the application, so if, you're, if your science is not just about the pureness of chasing knowledge and it's about application, then we try to co-invest. So we try to... Or, or get... Uh, so research that might have an investment from another party and that way you know it's aligned to the impact that you want. So someone else wants that research. So you'll see a model of hybrid research where it's both has the Australian government funding it through the core funding as well as then other parties will then join in and pay for some of that research. So that then gives you two things. It makes you makes you make sure your research is targeted but also then guarantees um, you've got money to do your work. So, we're yeah, I think we're doing okay. That was a quite a diplomatic answer because I am a public servant in the end, so I have to be somewhat cautious. Yeah, I wanted to make a wisecrack about salaries there, but I won't. <laughs> no. <laughs> hey, um, Chris. Obviously, uh, the last year has been an interesting one, uh, you know, globally. And you mentioned earlier about a, a pandemic not being a good thing, but from a science perspective, it's probably been uh, your equivalent of New Year's Eve in the entertainment industry, I would have thought. Um, we've we've heard about the Oxford Uni uh, vaccine and we've heard about the Pfizer vaccine. Has Australia and or the CSIRO, uh, you know, been involved in, in any uh, vaccine research or assistance, you know, to help globally? Yeah, and again, not in my area, my field, but what I know of it, it's been certainly uh, a, a genuinely global scientific effort. So everything from the initial description, if you like, of the virus and then its impacts. So CSIRO has been engaged in that type of research as well as partnering with the types of research that lead to vaccines. So that's quite multifaceted, if you can imagine. So some of it is about the drugs, if you like, the technology that gets it gets it into your arm, as well as then the trials and the efficacy. Um, the, some of the really, really interesting research is the uh, things like understanding how long the virus survives on different surfaces. So CSRO did some work on that that got was fairly high profile. So it looked at how long does the virus retain and therefore be effective and still be able to infect people if it's on a polymer banknote or a, a metal surface or things like that. So, And it was quite long in, in a lot of its circumstances. So backed up the public health message about, you know, washing your hands and all that sort of thing. There's quite a lot of – it's quite a sensible thing to do. Um, as well as some of the work that our, my, our part of the, my part of the business unit has been doing around how you do uh, surveillance of um, public health surveillance using sewage as well. So that's been a little bit of research going on. And so you can take water from – uh, sewage treatment plants, and you can understand if there's virus in the in the population that services that sewage treatment plant. So you occasionally see a report that will say fragments of the virus have been found in a particular location, and that'll be, in some instances, been been tested by CSIRO scientists. But certainly the technology, or sorry, the the methods were developed by CSIRO people. So it's quite varied. Yeah, it's been really really a big effort. So I've been reading lately that in China. Uh, they're testing, they're not only doing a nasal uh, swab, they're also doing a, a, an, an anal swab as well. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so uh, 
So um, yes, uh, so basically, <laughs> so basically, the virus sheds. You'll hear this word: the virus is shedding, and it sheds from your body. And so, mm-hmm. one of the places that you can see it is in in fecal matter. Hence, it, you can see it in um, through treatment plants. So mm-hmm. that's just shortcutting the process, really. I suppose just going straight to source. Um, yeah. And yep. Pete's brain's exploding with some <laughs> sort of smart-ass comment that he wants to make. <laughs> I won't. Um, although the first thing that came to mind was fake news, but we don't say that anymore. <laughs> um, news, mate. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Um, Chris, when, when uh, the proverbial hit the fan in March last year, uh, you know, we heard, well, until a vaccine happens, basically the world's going to be at a standstill. And then not too far after that, we heard, well, the earliest that'll happen is 18 months or two years. And now we're talking about this or several versions of vaccines already in existence and, and already being used on humans. Um, should we be concerned about the short amount of time it took to come up with a vaccine? Uh, not uh, not in my mind, and I'm not a, a vaccine scientist, so I think one of the things I should point out, and it's a disclaimer that um, I'm not an expert in this area, but um, if, if you were going to be uh, as thorough as you could, it would be in this area of science. You couldn't imagine there would be no shortcuts taken. So um, it's impressive, but it's also built off. So science is built off other science. So you, you tend not to be starting afresh. So there would have been um, vaccine development being ongoing at the time, and there would have been stuff through SARS and MERS and other similar type of viruses, viruses previously that they would have built on. But you know, the extraordinary effort to do it is quite impressive. So for me, it's the impressive nature of it. Um, the So I, no concern at all. And what you will see, I suspect, is that this is the first generation of vaccines. There'll then be other vaccines that will come out of that. And the application of what they've done will then be to other diseases as well. So that'll be the really interesting bit is what happens with the rest of it. So if you've done this bit and you've cracked through some threshold of science in that, what else could that be applied to once you've kind of dealt with the pandemic or you've got the next generations of um, vaccines? So that'll be the interesting thing to see what happens next. It's so fascinating, Chris. Yeah, it's pretty it's cool, so, right? I love, I love listening <laughs> yeah. to a scientist talk like this. Because uh, um, now my brain's gone up in several directions. You're still thinking about the swabs in China, aren't you? <laughs> no, no. In fact, uh, in fact <laughs> Moved when on. talking, I was thinking about um, a documentary that I was just watching before coming on here. Uh, Bill Gates was being interviewed about COVID. And the first question he was asked was, you know, can you rank uh, how well the world has done in relation to this, given that you predicted this in 2015 in a TED talk, <laughs> and, um, and, and how, how the US has gone? Uh, and he answered the question by saying, well, the US hasn't done very well. I wouldn't be giving it high marks. Um, you know, it could have been better prepared and it could have been, it could have got the outcomes that, and he said, two countries. South Korea and Australia, hmm. which I thought was pretty incredible wow. to be in that, yeah. Uh, yeah. that category. But then he went on to say that what the U.S. has done very well, and it goes to what you were talking about before, Chris, is the, the money they sank into developing the vaccine and producing it as quickly as they have. Yeah, yeah. 
and there's a there's a level of thoroughness required in that. So the expense of doing it is doing it properly, um, and having it then delivered to people in a safe manner. So that that's really where the challenge is, I suspect. Um, and again, uh, at the edge of knowing what what the science breakthroughs were and not knowing them at all. But it is impressive to do it in that period of time and have a consensus in the way it's been done as well. So uh, it's not it's not one group that's done it. It's multiple groups that you'll see that are having success with vaccines, which is really promising in terms of what what else could come from it for me looking at it. What do you, yeah, on that point, what, what do you think could be a possibility from all this research that is being done? What's, what's your gut feel? Um, Bad question to ask us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think. I mean, I, I suspect, and I don't know. Again, I, I sort of struggle to know enough about it. But the the approach they've taken in developing it has been a new is a new way of developing vaccines, and so that will open up a whole different uh, therapeutics or whatever the uh, delivery mechanism might be for it. So I suspect that's the type of area where there's been a, a real breakthrough, um, and or an accelerated breakthrough. It was probably kind of there, and this this is what really had to happen to kick it in. Um, so I suspect it'll be something like that, and sh- and I hope that we learn a bit from the experience as well. So if you look at the impact of shutting down on natural environments and uh, reductions in greenhouse gas emissions, and uh, all, there's all sorts of things that could come out of it. There will be a whole range of different activities that will come out because it's such a such a an event, you know, truly a one-in-a-lifetime event, people will be taking advantage of that for observation science and new research. Well, in fact, Bill actually said in the, in the, in the documentary, uh, get ready for the next pandemic, you know. Uh, so <laughs> it may not be a one in a lifetime event, but yeah, yeah, I said that, and I and I realised I was probably not being fair to the discipline, but um, they aren't they aren't ex- they aren't related events, so they're mutually exclusive. So like any any of the odds of anything, it can happen. A one in a hundred year event can happen three years in a row. Um, mm. So there's nothing stopping the next one happening in a sense, uh, except you'd hope that we learnt a bit about you know the nature of the how the disease crossed over. If, if it's a zoonotic disease or a, a disease that's passed from animals to humans, then you hope that there's something learnt from that as well. But, yeah, mm. there's, there's always going to be a pandemic someday, unfortunately. I'll tell you one of the benefits that uh, has occurred as a result of this, um, and having spent a lot of time down south in the last couple of years, Chris, the common cold and the run-of-the-mill flu are virtually non-existent at this point in time. <laughs> yeah, it's a, <laughs> it's a so people wash their hands and they keep distance, and it's it's a pretty good public public health messages. Um, yeah, there's some do, bonuses. Do you you as a scientist um, smile or giggle to yourself at all when we have a a global pandemic that you know is now responsible for? hundreds of thousands of deaths, etc. And the key takeaway from it is wash your damn hands. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it does seem um, it seems a little bit trite, I suppose, is that hopefully that's not the only key takeaway for all that tragedy. But there is a bit about the uh, I think the reason we had a good response was because we were we were serious about the public health messages and and people were compliant um but also there was uh, you know this is a serious disease uh or virus and 
So, yeah, it's, it is difficult to make light of it. But you're right, in a sense, there is some hygiene practices that are just good to have. Would I feel like know. I should wash my hands now or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, there's another uh, takeaway if you listen to Sam Harris um, uh, talking about this. He, uh, <laughs> he said anybody that's playing with a duck in one hand and a bat in the other is an ethnic terrorist. <laughs> <laughs> True, true. Um, Look, just to change up, uh, change gears a little bit, there's another area of science that is utterly fascinating at the moment and one that we are supposed to be deeply concerned about if you're listening to the likes of Elon Musk and the late, uh, um, uh, what's his, Stephen Hawkins. What, uh, What is the CSIRO doing, if anything, in relation to AI? Uh, so we have uh, a, a business unit, so we call them business units, the way we organise, called Data61 that works on computer technology and AI and ML. So artificial intelligence and machine learning is the is the uh, what the acronym stands for. So lots of work in that area. Um, in like all of this thing, it's about how it's then applied to a problem. So for so we use it. We do uh, a little bit of the work that I was engaged have been engaged in is around the way you move agricultural products to market. And so if you think you grow a crop somewhere in the north, call it mangoes, and you want to work out how's the most efficient way to get that to market, or what the cost of that is, or how you reduce that cost, then you you need to know the roads, the markets, and stuff like that. And then you need to process that somehow. Uh, in an algorithm. So, an algorithm is just an equation uh, in a computer and it quickly works out what that is and optimizes it. So, you can do that many ways and one way to do that is use AI or, or machine learning is the other way it's called and then that essentially then is a, is a smarter, faster way to do that. Um, and so, that's where I don't get what AI ML is. I couldn't explain the way the, the mathematics works, but I can tell you the way we can apply it. It just makes that those calculations then become better and faster because the the intelligent bit is it's learning from what it did last. So it's saying it's intuitive, it's iterative, if you like. So it just learns from the next one. It's probably the way it's been explained to me, and that's the limit again of my maths knowledge. Um, but it means you can process that stuff a lot faster and get a, a quicker response. One of the reasons it works for us now is computers are bigger. So you can actually do that much faster because you've got the processing speed. So as soon as you fix that, so you've got faster computers, et cetera, you could then start to apply that stuff more and it would give you quicker results and better results. So, yeah, it again, wait and see. Who knows what it'll, what it'll – how it's applied is a really interesting bit. I'm kind of not into the pure bit of how it was made, but how you apply it is the interesting bit for me. Mm. Well, I've got one last question for you, unless Pete's got something to ask you. I've always got questions. Do you want to go last to you? Yes. Well, the, the question I was going to ask, because we, we've asked Chris a few questions where he's rightly said it's not my field of expertise. It's been most so far, actually, so, yeah. <laughs> so I, I want to give you the free kick in front of goal and say – What's the number one question we should have asked you so that you can, uh, you know, tell us your um, get sink right into your field of expertise? Uh, so, <laughs> so, so I again should have prepared. I probably would have gone back to my uh, my trees stuff. So I actually did 
there was a real theme at the start of my career around trees, so tuer trees. I then worked in trees in pastures and then looked at other things. So I probably would have been at the trees bit. And having said that, I, I can't remember much of it because it seems so long ago. So um, what I do remember, though, is it's cooler under trees than it is. So in the shade, it's cooler than it is out in the open. And that was really the mm. – that was about 10 years of hard thought and, and work to get to that point. <laughs> Um, so not all science is brilliant. Um, some of it is a bit pedestrian, but it got me a PhD. So yeah, that's good. Cool. Well, I, I do have a sub question then, given your uh, your tree expertise, uh, and I hope this doesn't steal your thunder, Leon. But it's around the topic of mangoes, right? No, because um, yeah, I, I guess you must have some interest given the uh, different breeds, if that's what they're called, or different uh, varieties of mango that are available in the Territory? Uh, yeah, certainly, uh, obviously, other than uh, as a consumer, because there's a fantastic variety of them, it is really interesting looking at the way the varieties and the breeds have come out. There's an extraordinary amount of mango breeds in the world, uh, like you see in bananas and a lot of tropical fruits, but we tend to have just a few that that we use. And so the really interesting thing for the north is how you extend the season that you get from using different varieties. Uh, and so if you if you go into the shops and you kind of got a keen eye for it, you'll first see, uh, you know, late into August, you might see these greeny mangoes. They're probably from Mexico, but that's the start of the mango season. Then you'll see KPs and then you'll see something else and something else. And then, so if you think of, if you're a mango industry, what you want to do is is produce mangoes all year round or have them in the shelf all year round. Mm. So that's what you're trying to get. The gold in that is having a breeds that are fit for purpose in the environment they sit in, nice to eat, uh, so they're good for the consumer, they like them, but also you can produce them for as much mm. time as possible. Um, so, yeah, so I, yeah, apart from not knowing a lot about the breeds, it's for me, that would be, that'd be the type of stuff you'd look at. How do you get uh, get mangoes for longer because it's a better world if we have mangoes all year round. <laughs> True. Hmm. What's your favourite variety of mango? Uh, me, uh, probably KPs, just a standard. I think they're great. They're, uh, yeah, yep. There's a few, there's a, these big uh, honey gold ones, which I always find look fantastic, but not quite as tasty. So, yeah, yep. God, I hope no, the mango industry is not listening. I could get get some uh, nasty letters tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Madison Clonin we had on the podcast um, from the uh, Department of Primary Industries and she talked about mangoes. Right. <laughs> but, uh, for Pete and I, uh, we, we are con converts to the Nam Doc My variety. Oh, right there you go. Yeah, yeah. Mm. that's the green one you'll see, isn't it? The, mm. Yeah, which is fairly early. Yeah, they're beautiful. And they're in salads, right? They're a savory-ish. Um, you can have them, but, you know, Pete, Pete can go through a box on his own. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> They're insanely good. There you go. And, and, there you and go. the great thing about, you know, talking about varieties and, and, you know, bang for buck, the seed on that thing is flat, Chris. It's, it's like a surfboard. Yep. So you're maximizing your fruit, right? That's, yeah. 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 There's breeding. That's uh, that's kind of the when you see something like that, you know that that's been selection. Mm. Um, either people just selecting over time or breeding for that particular trait. Yeah. Right. But uh, fantastic. Yeah, I highly recommend that. Uh, there you go. I'll put that, that on the shopping list. Yeah. <laughs> but I was <laughs> going to ask you because you raised the issue of mangoes. I mean, look, if I could offer a suggestion for something to do research on bananas. And the shelf life of the <laughs> right. drives me no end of nuts. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, interesting. We did look at bananas, uh, not not increasing the shelf life. Unfortunately, I can't help you there. But we did look at how you could, if you could grow, because uh, obviously they're cyclones, so bananas tend to fall over in cyclones. But could you grow bananas in a block? So we looked at a block in the Wildman and said. Um, how many bananas could you grow in about 500 hectares? And then would, what would happen if you put them into the market? And so it turned out you could grow enough bananas to feed Adelaide, uh, the city of Adelaide, and it would be economic to get them to there. So that, so using that transport model I talked about, we had to look at all that. So you stick all that together. The only flaw in that argument, it means that ad, everyone in Adelaide has to eat twice as many bananas. <laughs> so, so it works until you actually have the reality of the market. So, yeah. So, mm-hmm. bananas are great. They're a very good, uh, uh, very hardy crop uh, and could grow well up here, um, but it's a tough market to crack into. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why? I mean, Chris, why can't they just last longer? You <laughs> I'm not sure. I can't help you with that. Slightly yeah. green bunch. You take it yeah. home. You can't eat it straight away because it's got that. It's, it's, it's yeah, yeah, not yeah. Quite there. The next day, beautiful, perfect. <laughs> the day after, it starts to spot, and, and then the next day, it's perfect for a smoothie. The next day, yeah, or a, or a banana cake. That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, look, definitely on the edge of my knowledge. I can't help you with that, unfortunately. Yeah. All right. but, you, you seem very troubled by it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very troubled by it mate, deeply because I feel like I've, I've wasted so much money buying bananas. You know, or I'm sitting there like a monkey eating the whole lot. <laughs> I feel like the CSIRO is going to come out with a major announcement in the next few weeks. <laughs> there could be one. We're going to work on that tonight, I think. Yeah. <laughs> well, Chris, it's been great having you on the podcast. My final question was, uh, you, you know, you mentioned 300 people in the CSIRO. I presume that's national, right? No, that's just our part of CSRA, so the, the okay. business unit. So there's about, I think we're about 25 in Darwin, around about. That's just uh, Yes, yeah, about 350 in the business unit part I'm in. So I'm in the land and water business unit. And then there's about, I think it's about 5,500 people, plus or minus. Yeah. Uh, so quite a big organisation. Um, the... Uh, the, the largest part is still in the agriculture and food section. So, uh, so there probably is someone working mm. on bananas somewhere. <laughs> um, I just haven't met them yet. So, if I do, I'll, I'll give, give you a call. All right. Well, we'll hashtag bananas and CSIRO. <laughs> we'll see what happens. <laughs> we'll load it up. <laughs> but uh, thanks for coming on, uh, Chris. It's really great to see you again. And, uh, you know, I, as I said to you before, you know this, I'm a big fan of you and, and of science in general. And, I love what Australia does in relation to to science, so good on you. Great, thank you. It's been nice to talk. That was Chris Chilcott from the CSIRO on the Territory Story podcast. We'll catch you again next time. You've been listening to the Territory Story podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story podcast on all leading podcasting platforms The Territory Story Podcast, thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.